Welcome back to What's Up With Your Down There. I'm your host, Miriam Rosenberg, Certified Nurse Midwife at Legacy Emanuel Midwifery in Portland, Oregon. On today's episode, we're talking about BV, also known as bacterial vaginosis. This is the most common vaginal infection you've probably never heard of. What's up with your down there? 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 Down there. So bacterial vaginosis, or BV, is a garden variety vaginal infection that happens pretty frequently. So about 30 to 50% of sexually active women in the United States are affected by BV. So that's about 4 million people per year. So what is BV? The short answer is that BV is a vaginal infection caused by an overgrowth of bacteria in the vagina, which is made possible by a lack of healthy vaginal lactobacilli. And again, those are the healthy bacteria that should populate the vagina and keep it super acidic. The longer answer is a little bit more confusing. Basically, in a healthy vagina, bacteria called lactobacilli are everywhere, and they produce hydrogen peroxide, which keeps the vagina very acidic. This acidic environment discourages the growth of certain bad bacteria, which prefer a more basic environment to grow. So when you have BV, other bacteria, specifically Gardnerella vaginalis, although there are some others, replace those healthy lactobacilli. What's not very clear is whether the bad bacteria come first and kill off the lactobacilli, or whether something else kills off those awesome lactobacilli which keep your vagina acidic, and in the more basic environment that's left behind, the bad bacteria are able to overgrow. Once Gardnerella, that bad bacteria, gets a foothold in your vagina, it starts to create what's called a biofilm a slimy layer which protects the bacteria and allows it to grow, and which is difficult for medicines or antibiotics to penetrate. I think of it as being similar to the film that you get on your teeth, which, if you allow it to take hold, creates plaque, which allow dental bacteria to eat away at your teeth and cause cavities. In your vagina, biofilms may prevent some of the treatments that we use for BV from reaching the bacteria that they're trying to kill. So this biofilm creates a sort of safe haven for the bacteria to regrow following a single course of treatment. The most common symptom of BV is this very characteristic thin, gray, excessive, and stinky discharge. People usually describe it as smelling like fish. It often gets worse if you were to wash your vagina with soap or if semen were to come in contact with your vagina because that releases the compounds that smell fishy. People often notice that they're more prone to bacterial vaginosis following a period, which may have something to do with period blood being more basic. And therefore, when the vagina has been sort of flushed with a more basic blood, it maybe is more possible for those basic loving bacteria to take hold. For most people, BV is sort of an annoying infection to get. It causes this discharge. Things don't smell good. It might make you less inclined to have sexual activity if you're worried about how your vagina smells. Some people are going to have some irritation with it, uh, especially if they're having a lot of discharge and they can get some swelling and redness and sometimes even some itching of the vulva, the outside of the vagina area. Some people will even have a little bit of light bleeding or spotting. But in addition to those annoying and bothersome symptoms, it's also associated with some increased risks for more serious health problems. So if you have BV, you're more likely to get pelvic inflammatory disease, which can cause 
lasting scarring and problems in your uterus, ovaries, generally the reproductive organs. It can also increase the risk if you've got BV that if you're exposed to gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomoniasis, or HIV, that you become infected with those infections. In addition, for pregnant people who have BV, it can also increase their risk for preterm birth if it goes untreated. While it's mostly just annoying, in some cases it can be more than annoying. So how do you get it? Here's the thing. We don't really know. This is one of those areas in healthcare that's frustrating because it's a condition that has existed for time immemorial, and yet we do not have a good understanding of why people get it and therefore how we can most effectively prevent and or treat it. We do know that there are certain activities that can throw off your normal vaginal ecosystem and that those activities might increase your risks of getting BV. So that includes things like douching, which unfortunately is often both a cause of BV but also potentially a result. So if you have stinky discharge, one of the first things you might think about doing is like washing that stuff out, right? So you do a douche. So sometimes it's hard to tell from the research that we have whether people are douching because they have stinky discharge or do they have stinky discharge because they've been douching. So tricky there. We also know that having used antibiotics recently can increase your risk of getting bacterial vaginosis, and we think that's probably because some antibiotics are going to kill off that healthy vaginal flora or that lactobacillus and therefore create an environment that is more basic because there's none of the lactobacilli to create that hydrogen peroxide. The other thing that puts you more at risk for getting BV is smoking cigarettes. And while you may have started to think at this point in the podcast that I think the solution to everything is quitting smoking, and potentially you are right, there is actually a connection there. So smoking tobacco reduces the level of estrogen in your body, which can cause your hormones to be in a slightly different state. And that can result in a higher risk of contracting BV because estrogen is partially responsible for supporting all the healthy flora in the vagina. So if you don't douche, you haven't taken antibiotics, and you're not smoking, how'd you get it? There also does seem to be a sexual component to it, because some of the other risk factors for getting it are new or multiple sexual partners, being younger the first time that you have sex, or engaging in sex work. We're going to spend a little bit more time later in this episode talking about whether or not we should consider BV a sexually transmitted infection, but I'm going to hold off on that for now. So let's say... You wake up in the morning, you go to take your shower, a little bit of soap runs over your vulva, and all of a sudden you're like, woof, something smells like fish in here. Or your partner goes down on you and says, like, hmm, things smell a little different than usual. And you think maybe you've got bacterial vaginosis. So how do you get checked out? I strongly encourage people who think they have a vaginal infection to come see a healthcare provider. People often confuse bacterial vaginosis with a yeast infection, and the treatments for the two different conditions are very different, and so it's really important that you actually get checked and confirm what it is you have. Testing for bacterial vaginosis generally involves one of two tests. One is a speculum exam test called a wet mount, where a provider takes a swab of the discharge inside your vagina tests the pH or the acid-base balance of that discharge, and then looks at the sample under a microscope to look for some classic signs of bacterial vaginosis. The other test is a DNA test for Gardnerella, which is that bacteria that tends to be most dominant when people have bacterial vaginosis. And that can either be collected during a speculum exam or even on a self-swab that you do without having an exam. The DNA swabs tend to be much more expensive, and I feel like a 
wet mount by a skilled provider is actually a more accurate way of diagnosing bacterial vaginosis. In my experience, some people will test positive for Gardnerella bacteria, but aren't actually having the full cadre of symptoms that would classify them as having bacterial vaginosis. So I just think the wet mount is a more exact test. If a person is really motivated to not have a speculum exam for one reason or another, sometimes it is possible for you to collect your own swab for the provider to look at under the microscope. So if that's really important to you, you can always talk with your provider about different options for diagnosis. And some of that can be individualized based on your comfort level with the speculum exam and what particular symptoms you're having. If you go to your provider, you have some testing done, and it turns out that you do have, in fact, bacterial vaginosis, about 30% of the time, bacterial vaginosis may resolve without treatment. But if it's been a week or so and your bacterial vaginosis does not appear to have gotten better, then it's time to bust out some bigger guns. Generally, the treatment for bacterial vaginosis is going to be with antibiotics. There's a couple different antibiotics that we can use. Usually we're using a medication called metronidazole, which can be taken either as a pill that you swallow or as a gel that you put in your vagina using an applicator. There's also another vaginal treatment called clindamycin, which is also an option, and generally the treatment takes about five to seven days. There is also a new one-dose medication called secnidazole, which is little granules that you sprinkle onto food and you eat. This is a newer medication, but it's something that can have comparable efficacy, but not require being on treatment for five to seven days. It is super important to note that drinking alcohol while you are being treated for BV with one of these medications is super important. If you combine alcohol with metronidazole, you can start puking. So I usually tell people that if they're on any of these medications, they should not drink any alcohol while they're on the medication and actually for 24 hours afterwards. If you're using clindamycin vaginal cream, it's also important to know that that's an oil-based medication, and so it can weaken latex condoms or a diaphragm for up to five days after use, so you might want to use a backup method. That said, the general recommendation is that people who have BV should use condoms if they're going to have sexual intercourse while they're being treated. Generally, I don't recommend that people have a follow-up visit unless they're continuing to have symptoms following treatment. Most of the time, with one dose of treatment, you're going to get cured from the infection. So there's about an 80% chance that a round of antibiotics is going to take care of it. However, the rate of recurrence of bacterial vaginosis within the first year following treatment is more than 50%. So while it can cure you, there's a good chance that you might get reinfected within the year. There's not a lot of proven methods that prevent bacterial vaginosis, but like I said, I do encourage people to avoid smoking, avoid douching, and use condoms consistently, especially if they are struggling with recurrent bacterial vaginosis infections. One part of the thinking about this is that semen is very basic. So if you have sex with a person who has a penis and there's semen in your vagina, that may create a more basic environment that allows that Gardnerella bacteria to overgrow. Perhaps because BV is so prevalent in the general population, a bunch of questions about it on the podcast. So let's jump in. I had never heard of BV until I was over 30. It's actually how I found out my ex-husband cheated on me because I had symptoms with no other explanation. 
And after being tested for every STD under the sun, which is a good deal terrifying, it had apparently just been the upset to my normal bacteria. Is bacterial vaginosis really an STD? Hmm, not according to the Centers for Disease Control. So it's definitely sexually associated, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but the available research is kind of inconclusive. Interestingly, women who have never been sexually active are very rarely affected by BV. Secondly, it doesn't meet what's called the Koch's criteria for an infectious disease. So what that says is that in order to classify something as being infectious, the bacteria has to be present every time you have the disease. So, okay, do we have Gardnerella every time we have this disease? Yes. The bacteria has to be able to be isolated from a person who has the infection and then grown in a culture, so in a Petri dish. And with Gardnerella, you can, in fact, do that. The next criteria is that you have to be able to reproduce the infection when we take bacteria from that Petri dish and put it inside a healthy host. Now, this is the part that is not necessarily the case. If you put Gardnerella vaginalis bacteria, just straight pure bacteria, into a healthy vagina, it is not necessarily going to cause BV. And that is partially because if there are enough lactobacilli to create a super acidic environment, that Gardnerella that you've introduced will likely be killed off by the acidic environment. So this is the area where it raises a bit of a question of, does, is it truly an infectious disease? While bacterial vaginosis is not considered specifically a sexually transmitted infection, it does probably result, at least initially, from a transfer of the bacteria, Gardnerella, from a sex partner who harbors that bacteria. People with penises may actually act as a reservoir, even if they don't have symptoms. When we do studies where we look at bacteria on the scrotum and penis, especially underneath the foreskin, they have found Gardnerella there. And in fact, one study showed a 50% reduction in bacterial vaginosis in people whose partners were randomly assigned to circumcision. So there's a prevention technique. Perhaps a less radical approach would be to use condoms consistently to try to reduce that exposure to those bacteria if you're struggling with recurrent bacterial vaginosis. That said, it seems like the initial transfer of bacteria from your partner to you may explain your first infection with bacterial vaginosis, but if you're continuing to get infections with bacterial vaginosis, it doesn't seem as though that is caused by repeatedly being exposed to a partner who carries the bacteria. It may rather reflect a relapse as opposed to a reinfection per se. So people with vaginas who have sex with people with penises can potentially obtain the bacteria at least initially from sexual contact. Circumcising that penis or putting a condom over it may reduce the risk of recurrence, but it may not. Now, for people who have a vagina who have sex with other people with vaginas, there is a much more direct connection between one partner having bacterial vaginosis and the other one getting bacterial vaginosis. So the recommendation is that if one partner is diagnosed with BV who has a vagina, any partner that that person has sex with who also has a vagina should go ahead and get treated. If you're a person with a vagina who has sex with people who have penises, the available research suggests that treating those partners with penises does not reduce the infection rate. There was a 2016 Cochrane review which found high-quality evidence that treating sexual partners of women with bacterial vaginosis did not affect symptoms or recurrence of affected women. 
That said, there is currently a trial going on in North America where they're randomizing people with penises to get a seven-day course of metronidazole and comparing that to a placebo. And the results from that study are expected March of 2020. So hopefully we'll be getting more information and maybe we'll have some new options for prevention and treatment. So that was a long answer to a short question, but I guess one of the points I want you to take away is that if you have a bacterial vaginosis infection, it is not a sign that your partner has been having sex with other people. So if you're in a monogamous relationship, it's not cause for panic at this point. I love this next question. Is it safe for someone to go down on me if I have BV? So again, this touches on the point of, is this basically an infectious condition? Now, what I will say is, the biofilms that I mentioned, that slimy layer that protects the Gardnerella bacteria in the vagina, those biofilms can exist in the mouth as well. So if you have BV in your vagina and your partner goes down on you, it is possible for the bacteria to potentially take hold in your partner's mouth. They're not going to have any symptoms, though. If you then got your BV treated, it's unlikely that the Gardnerella in your partner's mouth would then reinfect your vagina. That said, if your partner performs oral sex on another person's vagina, it's possible that your partner could introduce that bacteria to that person's vagina and they could potentially get their very first BV infection. So as a basic safe sex practice, it's probably best to avoid unprotected oral or penis and vagina sex when you have an active BV infection. Next up, we've got a question that I get asked all the time in the office. I've been getting BV frequently since my IUD was placed. Is the IUD causing my BV? There is research that shows that having an IUD is associated with BV, but we don't understand if the IUD is the cause or if people who use IUDs just have a higher incidence of those other risk factors for BV. So for example, people who use IUDs and have sex with people with penises may use condoms less often because they're not in need of birth control, and not using condoms is a risk factor for BV. The available research that we do have says that while women who use an IUD have higher rates of BV-associated bacteria like Gardnerella, it's not statistically significant. So we can't say that it's the IUD that is causing the BV. In addition, prolonged bleeding with your periods can increase the risk of BV because blood is so much more basic than the vagina is when it's healthy. So bleeding all the time might alter your vagina's acid-base balance and, again, let that Gardnerella bacteria overgrow. While many people with hormonal IUDs have more bleeding than usual in the first few months of using the IUD, after six months, people will generally have much less bleeding than they did previously, which may actually reduce their chance of having BV. This wasn't part of your question, but on the topic of birth control, women using birth control pills that have both estrogen and progesterone in them have significantly reduced rates of colonization with Gardnerella compared to those who are just using condoms. Studies have also found that people using those birth control pills are also more likely to be colonized with healthy lactobacilli, so that normal healthy flora that we see in a vagina that tends to help keep bacterial vaginosis at bay. So one strategy you might consider would be to take 
a birth control pill on an extended cycle, so using it for three months at a time without taking placebo pills, which would result in you having only four periods a year. And that's going to do two things. So you're increasing the estrogen levels in the vagina because the birth control pill contains estrogen. But in addition, because you're having fewer periods, you're reducing the number of days that that very basic blood is passing through the vagina. And therefore, the combination of those two things could theoretically help reduce the chance that you get BV again. But let's say you don't want to take a pill or you can't take estrogen. There's good news. The birth control shot, also called Depo-Provera, has been shown to significantly reduce the rates of colonization with Gardnerella compared with condoms. So there's an option for you too. So in summary, I do not think that your IUD is likely to be causing your BV based on the research that I have at my disposal. In addition, if you're just in the first six months of using your IUD, you might want to give it a few more months before you decide whether or not to keep it. But if you've had it for over six months and it's driving you crazy, you might have the option of switching to an estrogen-containing pill or the Depo shot, and that way you'd have good birth control, but also potentially reduce the concern about your IUD causing your BV. The next question is kind of the best question and the worst question. I've been struggling with multiple episodes of BV for over a year. I just keep getting treated with round after round of antibiotics. Is there anything I can do? Well, you can accept my empathy. Recurrent BV totally sucks. I hate it. You hate it. Nobody likes it. It is a problem for which we have limited tools and which, unfortunately, is pretty common. So like I said, the risk for recurrence within the first year is 50%. And for some people, this is a battle that they're going to be fighting for a long time. We don't really understand why some people are more prone to recurrent BV. We think that for some people, recurrent BV is because they are unable to reestablish those healthy lactobacilli in their vagina even after treatment. And for other people, they have a relapse even though they do have all that great healthy bacteria. There's some thought that it might be due to the Gardnerella bacteria having formed a biofilm around itself in the vagina, and so that single round of antibiotics isn't able to penetrate the biofilm and fully kill the bacteria, so people then get what we think of as a recurrence. So generally, when we're trying to address recurrent BV, it involves a prolonged course of antibiotics and potentially an acidifying agent called boric acid, which can help to disrupt those biofilms. If someone comes into my office and they're struggling with recurrent BV, there's a few different options I review with them. They can put metronidazole vaginal gel, one applicator in their vagina, twice a week for six months. And that's going to reduce the chance for recurrence from 59% down to 26%. But unfortunately, it's also associated with vaginal yeast infections, and then you end up having to treat those. So another option is to take a pill of metronidazole, and you take it once a month, but you also take with it a medication called fluconazole, which is specifically to combat yeast infections. And you take both of those once a month, every month, for a year. So that's a long treatment. There's limited data, but as I mentioned, there's some thought that potentially using antibiotics in combination with vaginal boric acid suppositories might reduce the risk for recurrence. Boric acid helps to disrupt the biofilm that might be protecting your BV bacteria from the antibiotics. So you place a little capsule up inside your vagina every night for 21 nights, and then you do metronidazole antibiotic vaginal gel twice weekly for six months. 
There's limited data to say that that may also be helpful. But as you can tell, these are all really long courses of antibiotics. A lot of people are curious about the role of probiotics in helping to either prevent bacterial vaginosis or to reduce the risk for recurrence. Now, what I will say is we don't really have enough data to reach strong conclusions, but there are some promising studies. And anecdotally, I find that many people who have recurrent BV tell me that when they started a probiotic, they found it really helpful in resolving their symptoms. The research seems to be conflicting. So several randomized controlled trials, which is kind of the gold standard for medical research, have found that giving a probiotic along with antibiotics increased the cure rates from 40% to 90%. And in addition, taking probiotics reduced recurrence rates after treatment from 30 to 45% all the way down to less than 15% and were associated with restoration of that healthy vaginal flora. Unfortunately, other trials have found no significant differences in cure rates with people taking probiotics or in the number of vaginal lactobacilli after giving people vaginal probiotics. So my general advice is that I don't think of probiotics as being an alternative to antibiotics, but rather something that might be helpful in combination with antibiotics. And unfortunately, they're super expensive and not covered by insurance for a lot of people. If you're going to take probiotics for a year, and I just looked up the cost for a common probiotic that I recommend for people, you're looking at $200 to $500 a year for probiotics. And so if we don't have a ton of scientific data that's super sound to say this is really effective, I guess sometimes I hesitate to have people use this as a first-line option. But for folks who are really struggling and have tried other things, I certainly think this is a reasonable option to try. As far as which probiotics, um, Lactobacillus acidophilus is the most researched strain of probiotic when it comes to maintaining a healthy vaginal balance. There's a couple other strains, which include Lactobacillus rhamnosus and Lactobacillus ruteri. And so some brands that I kind of point people towards, and I am not compensated at all for recommending these, are Florigen, Jaro, or Refresh Pro-B, which include some of those strains. Those are some places to go if you're looking for a pretty good probiotic. The other thing people can sometimes try, which may be less expensive, is eating foods that are either probiotic foods, so foods that contain the healthy bacteria we're trying to have colonize the vagina, or prebiotic foods. So these are foods that have indigestible fiber that your healthy bacteria can feed off of. Probiotic foods would include things like active culture yogurt, kefir, sauerkraut, kombucha, and kimchi. Prebiotic foods are apples, garlic, asparagus, onion, leeks, bananas, jicama, steel-cut oats, and flaxseed. Those things sound delicious to me. They are not super expensive. You got to eat anyway, so might be a great way to give your healthy flora a little bit of a boost. I've had some people ask me if they can just take their yogurt and put it directly in their vagina in order to try to colonize the vagina with lactobacillus. But unfortunately, the strains of lactobacilli that are in yogurt, which are lactobacillus bulgaricus and streptococcus thermophilus, are not the same strain of lactobacilli that populates a healthy vagina. But if you're going to ignore my advice and use yogurt for the love of all that's holy, please use plain yogurt. If you put yogurt that has sugar in it in your vagina, you are going to end up with an unholy yeast infection. There are some commercial branded vaginal probiotic suppositories, which does avoid the stomach acid issue with an oral probiotic. So the concern is if you take a probiotic through your mouth, 
you're kind of crossing your fingers, hoping that that bacteria makes it through the stomach acid and down to your vaginal area. So if you put a probiotic vaginally, the idea is that it avoids that issue and puts the bacteria right when you want them. But they do tend to be messier and trickier than a pill that you swallow. And you have to be willing to put something up inside your vagina. That said, there may be some improved efficacy over using just your standard commercial-grade yogurt. So if you want to put something in your vagina, using a vaginal probiotic suppository might be more effective than straight yogurt. But still, there's not a lot of good data to say that either one of them is terribly effective. So in summary, if you've got recurrent BV, you might benefit from using some vaginal boric acid to help acidify the vagina and disrupt any biofilms that may be protecting the bacteria that are causing your BV. And you're probably going to need an extended dose of antibiotics to try to really go after that bacteria. You may or may not benefit by taking a probiotic, but it's certainly something you consider if you've got the money and the inclination. Thank you so much for submitting all these excellent questions. If you've got a question about what's up with your down there, you can submit it by emailing what's up with your down there at gmail.com, by calling 503-660-8689 and leaving a voicemail, or by visiting the website www.whatsupwithyourdownthere.com and submitting a question through the web page. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter at your down there. And you can subscribe to the podcast on kboo.fm, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. To be clear, the views expressed in this podcast do not represent the views of my wonderful employer, Legacy Health Systems. Furthermore, this podcast is for your amusement and education only, and it is not a substitute for the medical advice of your healthcare provider. Thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to answering your questions on the next episode. This podcast was made possible by a generous community grant from the American College of Nurse Midwives and the Francis T. Thatcher Foundation. Original music by Joe McKenzie, with vocals by Christina Cano. Artwork by Sarah J. Elliott. This podcast was produced at KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. KBOO.FM. Thanks for listening. KBOO.